welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. The only podcast on the internet that deals with cars on screen doing stuff. I'm Chris Ratcliffe. With me as ever is Martin Spain. And before we get into the, well, the non-existent meat of this episode, this is kind of like a bit of a meat sandwich, but without the meat. It's just like, it's mostly bread today. Two bits of bread. That's that's selling ourselves short, I think. Just here are two crusty, stale bits of bread you found at the back of the fridge once you'd eaten your way through the Christmas turkey. I think <laughs> that might be a bit... I don't know, people are just going to switch off. Let's Let's be forward thinking and upbeat and go yes this isn't just a bunch of crap about what we watched while we were on holiday (laughs) except it absolutely is but really really according to the show notes you have a thing today in history today in history yes because today marks exactly 120 years since george melee's film a trip to the moon an early draft of the film revealed a plot which involved a fantastic season of motor racing ruined by a last-ditch administrative balls-up, but George decided that was far too fanciful and instead had a train drive into the moon's eye. That's today in history. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's amazing. That is amazing, and I would pay good money to see the uh, the original draft brought back to life. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we should probably move on to the news I've been yes. watching a lot of Top Gear reruns, I should add. <laughs> that was very, very James May announcing the news. Um, I discovered, oh, I think we mentioned on a previous pod that the iPlayer has all the old Top Gears available. And we were supposed to record this on Saturday night, but my wife was out and my son said, can we watch some Top Gear? Can, can we watch all the Top Gear? And so <laughs> instead of Chris and I doing a podcast recording, like we promised, I had to text him and say, Ben wants to watch lots of Top Gear. Uh, can we reschedule? Um, so, yeah, my son and I watched a ton of Top Gear reruns, especially like the racing ones. He loves the races, the Bugatti versus the plane. That went down really well. Mm. And then I dug out the um, LeBlanc-Harris uh, Bugatti Chiron versus LeBlanc on a on a boat and in a limousine and then in the Honda Jet and then on a motorbike. Um, that also went down very well. So anyway, let's do proper education. Let's do the news. What has been going on in in film car land since uh, since we recorded just before Christmas? Well, let's start with some actual news, and that is Charlie Rose, one of our favourite video video guys, say videographers. Um, he probably is. Who, along with Names escape me. Used to Evo Car of the Year films. Sam Riley. Sam Riley, really one of the top guys. I think he did um, a lot of stuff with Carfection with Henry Catchpole. Really great guy. Has been picked up by Top Gear as part of their video production crew. So big congrats to Charlie. I think that's a huge move for him, and I think certainly a move in the right direction. It's sad that Carfection loses one of their top guys, but I presume. They had a roster, and this may also open up the chance for people up and coming to get involved as well, which is always exciting. But yeah, I saw that this had happened, and Top Gear have got an extraordinary, talented videographer, cinematographer, call them what you will, because I think he he did an awful lot of not just the shooting, but the editing and and everything else. And a good deal of the look of Carfection, I think, owes itself to Charlie Rose. Mm. So yeah, it's interesting. We'll see see what he goes on and does at Top Gear. What else has been going on? So we've also had Larry Chen has taken over the Hoonigan Autofocus channel 
If you don't know who Larry Chen is, we have mentioned him before. He's really one of the guys. You've almost certainly seen his photography. He does uh, he did a lot of the Speed Hunter stuff. He did Formula Drift in the US, whatever it's called, Pikes Peak. There's a lot of IndyCar stuff as well. IndyCar, Nürburgring. He does uh, behind-the-scenes stuff with, like, Vaughan Gittings Jr., etc., etc., etc. He has been doing... I think it's fair to say he's been doing photography content for Hoonigan, but doing like sort of behind the scenes videos and really showing what goes into his craft. But he made an announcement at the start of his latest video, and we've got to talk about the video in a second because it's brilliant, that Hoonigan is going in a different direction. And I think, as far as I understand, they're basically trying to get all of their content, rather than having a network of channels, there is a Hoonigan channel and Larry's taken over the autofocus thing. It's completely now rebranded as him doing what he's always done before and with the people that he knows in the industry. So not a lot will change, but I think it's a great step for him. The video that he did this on the front of was, how do you pronounce that surname? Ryan Turek? Let's say Turk. Turk? <laughs> Sorry, Ryan Turk, we're mispronouncing your name, but <laughs> there's a video of a Judd V10-powered Formula Toyota Supra, which is about yes. as awesome as it sounds. It's So if you you probably know the 458 he did... No, it wasn't a 458, was it? It was a Toyota GT86 with the 458 engine sticking out through the yeah, that's, that's where that's the car that I went, oh, it's that guy. Yes. And he said that that was a bit pokey and this one's all done properly. It's a V10 F1 engine that now powers, you know, old Benettons and things of that era. Judd seemed to be the people to go to if you've bought an F1 chassis or a car or spares package or something and you don't want the hideous amounts of money to run whatever factory engine was in it, you get a Judd one which has slightly more palatable service intervals and... I presume spares costs. Well, and also, you can actually send it to them and they'll they'll rebuild it. Whereas I think if you've got an old Renault F1 engine lying around, you can't just nip down to your local dealer for a new set of valves or whatever. It's a you know huge specialist commission job. Anyway, let's move on because while we've been away over Christmas, a whole lot of stuff has happened with. Fast and the Furious. Yes, I know. I know we're talking about Fast and the Furious. It's unlike us, but... Can I make a confession before you get into this? No. Can, or, yes, go or, or, I, So, just to set the background, there has been a feud between Vin Diesel and Dwayne The Rock Johnson rolling on about whether or not Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to return to the Fast and Furious franchise. And it's been on again, off again. Basically, it seems like Vin Diesel was a bit of a dick on set and Dwayne Johnson's like... I don't need this franchise. I've got my own franchises. And then Vin Diesel wants to finish off Fast and Furious with the whole gang, all of the gang, back together. And that does include Hobbs, the character that Dwayne Johnson played. And I think Dwayne Johnson's like, nah, I don't want to. And Vin Diesel is getting increasingly desperate trying to get him to come back. Um, and I think this has kind of culminated in some some Instagram post calling him out which I have not read, and I haven't read any of the coverage around this, and I honestly don't give a fuck. I'm really (laughs) struggling to care because Vin Diesel is by far and away the least interesting thing about the Fast and Furious franchise at this point. The first movie, he was 
magnetic. He was front and centre in it. He was brilliant. But as the movies have got bigger and the cast has expanded, and especially since they've introduced somebody as charismatic as Han in there, I just don't care about Dominic Toretto. I just don't care. I care about all of the other people. I just don't care about him. And so his whole beef about bringing Hobbs back, I don't really care that Hobbs comes back. Do another movie with the Stath where they're both, I don't know, (laughs) stealing cars on the moon. Because I'm a staunch defender of the ridiculous Hobbs and Shaw spin-off. And I'd love to see more movies in this universe that are that daft and self-aware rather than the sort of po-faced getting very old baked potato looks and from Vin Diesel where he just wanders around the room in a white vest and grumbles the word family. <laughs> anyway, do you want to bring us up to speed on what's been going on this? Because I've kind of, I've basically admitted I don't know because I'm bored of it. But if you can summarise it in like a minute before we move on to more interesting <laughs> things, then then please do. We'll put a link to the show notes. There's a good GQ article that goes through all of this in great detail. The thing that just really made me smile, and I'm going to paraphrase this because it's not worth going into in any great detail, was how the two of them are basically being like, oh, you're part of the family and we need you. And then the, the rock replies with, you know, I told you in front of my daughter that I wouldn't come back and I shook your hand and now you're calling me out like this and you're bringing your children into it and, you know, that's not what brothers do. They're all, it's almost like they're having a feud in character, which given <laughs> see, the rock's I can see that, yeah. kind of wrestling background, you always think like... Is this a bit? Is this a bit? Is someone going to get hit over their head with a chair in a minute? <laughs> Are they just talking smack and I don't know. What is apparently happening there is talk of paul walker coming back into oh that's a terrible idea i cannot tell you what a terrible idea that is i know that bringing actors back to life through the medium of extraordinarily realistic cg is now possible it's still uncanny valley but it is possible to bring somebody back i mean good examples um sean young in blade runner 2049 is pretty good because they don't... It's not for very long, and the way that character looks is almost dreamlike anyway. Less successful examples, Grand Moff... Sorry. Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One? Christopher Lee's character. No, Peter Cushing's character. Oh, yes. If if it was just an, a passing shot in the background, you'd go, holy cow, that's Peter Cushing. But the fact <laughs> is, as soon as he starts talking, you go, wait, what's happening? What's happening? This is not right. That looks terrible. Because there's just that uncanny valley where they cannot get facial structure and musculature to look right. Someone can do a great impression of the voice and you can get the look right from many photographs and you can teach computers to interpolate between those photographs, but you can't get the musculature underneath to make it look correct and especially not around the mouth. There is just something about it that they can never get the mouth to look right when it's saying words. It's like watching cutscenes in a computer game. (laughs) The graphics are brilliant and the skin textures are fantastic and all of the hair is done in individual animated strands. But the moment the computer game characters start talking, the illusion just breaks. And Mm. that is where I feel this could go wrong if they bring back Paul Walker. And they just shouldn't. They wrote him out brilliantly. They did the very best yep. they could in Fast 7, and they should just leave leave it alone. But then I'm starting to feel like that about the entire franchise, to be honest. Fast and Furious 9? 
I forget now, was yep. just such a gaping, sucking hole of nothingness that it's kind of <laughs> decanted all of my interest in the franchise into it. And now I just kind of want, I want a Han spin-off and a Hobbs and Shaw spin-off and the rest of them can just go and live in that house on the side of a hill in the, <laughs> what is it, the LA mountains and have barbecue for the rest of eternity. There was an interesting, I say interesting, I, I get sucking into way too many of those clickbait things that pop up on Facebook. And when it starts going through the people that they want to bring back, so according to this completely unknown source, they want to bring back uh, Neela from Tokyo Drift and Lucas Black. And it get I get the feeling that there is a real push to bring everybody back for Fast 10, but... If I remember rightly, Justin Lin has been signed up for Fast and Furious 10 and 11. Two films, yeah. They're gonna, I believe they're going to shoot them back to back in the way that they always do. They claim they wanted to do two more films. Now, the, the thing that interests me is that the box office has changed quite significantly since the start mm. of the pandemic, where I think I can really only name four or five movies that have made decent money back. Like big, big action movies. I'm not talking about other movies, but you know, effectively, mm. you're looking at whatever it is that Marvel has put out into the cinema, and that's it. And I'm not sure that Fast and the Furious is going to be as successful in the future as it has been in the past. Unless they can bring the budget down, which, given Justin Lin's desire to make each one bigger than the last... Well, that's the thing. Where do you go now? You have actually been to outer space, so really it is the moon. There's just a bunch of crypto bros on Reddit going, to the moon! <laughs> In cars. That's it. I've made your film for you, Justin Lin. I, I want the Kevin Smith Fast and the Furious. I want them all sitting around in a garage somewhere. I'm just sorry, a what? talking. Garage? Yes, thank you. Just talking and sharing obscene stories and then, like, some action happens off camera. But this is the thing that everyone wanted from from the Avengers when they all watched Avengers Age of Ultron, where Joss Whedon has the Avengers having a party and then sitting around, kind of half drunk, trying to lift Thor's hammer and shooting the shit. And everyone went, yeah, let's have a three-hour film of that, please. Um, and they're not wrong. I would totally watch the shit out of that. But that's because the <laughs> Avengers are interesting characters, whereas most of the Fast crew are not interesting characters. True. Han is interesting because he's got a great backstory and the guy just plays him as the coolest dude in the universe. Mm. Tej has got a cool backstory. I'd love to see a movie about Tej or just generally Tej hanging out mocking everybody else. <laughs> if if they become self-aware like they did in Fast 9, I think that could be a fantastic... Yes, like, that's true. A Christopher Nolan Fast and Furious film where they realise... <laughs> no, um, not uh, Christopher Nolan. Um, the guy who wrote Being John Malkovich and... That film with Nick Cage, where yes, it's the writer... Charlie Kaufman? Yeah, it's Charlie Kaufman. Who, who wrote the film about a writer writing a film? Adaptation. Adaptation, that's the one. Anyway, one last quick Fast and Furious thing. There's been a bit of a fuss about a Fast and Furious RX-7 that came up for auction. There was a lot of coverage about this. People like Road and Track, I think, covered it. Several other big online outlets. Dominic Toretto's RX-7 from Fast and the Furious. 
except it wasn't. Now, do you know the name George Barris? Maybe vaguely rings a bell. I'm going to say no. So George Barris, good answer. Most famously, he invented, he invented, he designed, built, crafted the Adam West Batmobile. I think he did the car from the Pink Panther that was in the opening credits, the bubble car. Which is basically the Batmobile painted pink, yes. Pretty much, and a bubble roof on it. All that sort of stuff. Those are George Barris cars. He's created, or his his shop has created five Dominic Toretto RX-7s. The original movie borrowed an RX-7 from an owner and created two replicas, because that's what you do with films. The auction, and again, we'll put the listing in the show notes, includes a letter of authenticity, which is incredibly weirdly worded, which basically says, Vin Diesel drove an RX-7 in the Fast and Furious movie. This is also an RX-7. It says... George Barris has created a limited edition run of five RX-7s. And it's like, right, so what you're not saying there is that this has nothing whatsoever to do with the movie, but you're insinuating it does. It actually sold a couple of days ago for $75,000, which given the Paul Walker Supras go for, what, five hundred? is probably about right, but frankly... Is that about right for an RX-7, given the slightly crazy car market in the States, especially at the moment? Given that it was it was created by somebody with a name and a pedigree, it's not as... Yeah, if it had gone for 250 grand, something would have been horribly wrong. So I think it's, it's probably about found its level. But mm. I think it has shown up quite how... I don't want to say clickbaity, but I'm going to say clickbaity. Some online outlets have been when presented with these things. And be careful. Read, you know, don't just read the articles and read the headlines. Actually look at some of this stuff because there aren't a lot of these cars. The first Fast and the Furious, you know, they were repainting cars for another couple of films. Yeah, there's a funny a funny market for these movie cars now, which I find incredible because they're all just hunks of junk. With a few exceptions, look at the the Lamborghini that Tavares restored mm. that was a genuine Lamborghini with you know genuine parts and so on, but it came in such a state because it only has to look good on camera and you yep. can get away with an awful lot even if the camera is quite close to the car. And so when you see the state of some of the other cars that get bought, I mean, I think Tavares bought one of the cars from Need for Speed, one of the um, Lamborghini Sesto Elemento stunt cars. Oh, God, and that was... the Sesto Elemento original, awful. Uh, you know, the interior is just all carbon everywhere. And this just looked like someone had got some carbon wallpaper and stuck <laughs> it on everything in sight. And, you know, the steering wheel's got paddles on it that just look like they're made from balsa wood. And yet, mm. you know, I've watched that movie, to my shame, and I didn't notice a thing of this stuff <laughs> on camera because they do just fool you, especially with shaky cam. Anyway, we should move on. One thing that did come up during the Christmas break is a story that Brad Pitt is set to make a movie about Formula One, which I read the story and then immediately texted you to say, so Brad Pitt wants to remake Driven. <laughs> It really is. Do you want to precede the plot 
quote unquote in as much as I, the details have been I released. haven't actually I'd have to go back as far as I can remember it is uh, an old Formula One driver is brought out of retirement by a team owner to help a young charger on his way up the Formula One ladder something along those lines so basically you've got the Sylvester Stallone character is going to be Brad Pitt and then the 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 young character who I forget the name of the actor that plays him, the Jimmy Bly guy, rookie sensation, Jimmy Fly. That guy is going to be whoever the young star is. And they're just going to do that, which in a, in a world where Formula One has just had the most Hollywood couldn't believe it. If you wrote it ending for the 2021 season alongside a whole other bunch of stuff, is that the best you can do? Why don't you make a movie of the 2009 season with Braun? Yeah. Why don't you make a movie about, you know, Lewis Hamilton coming into the sport? You have a young doesn't even have to be a, a, a coloured racing driver. A woman, something. Do something slightly more original than old man comes in to help young driver stop being a wanker, <laughs> which is what they were, were talking about, really. I mean, mm. Brad Pitt has a good history of producing interesting movies. One of the podcasts that I listen to regularly is the Film Stories podcast, where yes. we've ripped off shamelessly. Uh, and <laughs> this week's episode covers Moneyball, which is a film that Brad Pitt produced and brought to the screen. It's based on a Michael Lewis book. It's a great book. It's a great film. And, you know, he has taste. He has a track record of bringing interesting movies to the screen. So this could be good. But the pricey sounds like Driven. And although I did once go to bat for Driven, it's it's (laughs) god-awful shite. So let's see how this develops. Um, And finally in the news, before we move on, Drive Tribe. The social site set up by Hammond, Clarkson and May, amongst others, to do written and video content like five years ago, it was kind of at the same time they set up the Grand Tour, um, is being closed or has closed now um, with like virtually no notice. They went, ah, we've run out of money, sorry, and then turned everything off. Just to be clear, because I saw a few comments online, you know, being our website correspondent... How much it costs to keep stuff like that running? I do. And I interviewed one of the guys that built the first iteration of of Drive Tribe for a role at the company where I work during my day job. And the guy was unbelievably smart. He should have been interviewing me, not the other way around. They had incredible tech and they did a load of incredible stuff, all of which was just totally pointless for the kind of site they had. I think they spent an enormous amount of money on people, on headcount, on building this new thing. And they didn't actually have a business plan as to how it was going to make money. And so it never did. And that was before they started spending money on journalists and writers. Yeah. So, yes, it costs a lot of money to keep something like this running with the kind of uptime and availability that you want for something that high profile, although I don't know what their traffic might have been. And also, also, it's not something that once it's there, you can't just leave it as this testament to the past it has to be maintained and it has to be kept running and that all comes at a cost yeah and to be fair i i kind of stopped going to the drive tribe site the moment they sacked all the editorial talent when you know when Mm. when henry and jethro both made the leap i was like aha i can see a sort of slightly more modern take on the kind of thing that people have been trying to do for decades now drivers republic tried it and 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 so on and so on and then they i think new broom management came in and went no they all cost too much got rid of them but then also didn't have a plan as to how he was going to make money either (laughs) so it is a shame that you know some of the young writers that cut their teeth writing for drive tribe 
have, I presume, lost the work they did. Um, you have to actually go in and save it yourselves. But they did have a reasonably successful video channel on YouTube, and that is being handed over to Richard Hammond, who is going to use it to keep updates of, I think, his Hammond's Garage um, TV show and other projects and so on. And Hammond has promised that Clarkson and May may show up at <laughs> some point in some of the videos. I think the Drive Tribe channel is at about 2.2 million subs at the moment. Which is not to be sniffed at. That's a lot of people. No, no, no. And the Food Tribe channel is, as we speak, is 377,000. And the guy who presents Drive Tribe, whose name I've now forgotten, watching some of the behind the scenes stuff, it seems like it's basically a, a small, small team who run both channels, clearly making AdSense revenue, plus all the usual stuff we see from car YouTubers where people put on things or they go and visit people, they go and do sponsored content or whatever. So there's clearly a path there to, to actually make money. One thing that I thought was interesting was when they announced this on their YouTube channel, Richard Hammond said that he didn't yet have a Series 2 commission for Hammond's Workshop from Discovery+. Plus. And I, I wonder how much that enterprise is dependent on having an outlet like, you know, like the old Gas Monkey, ga- um, gas monkey Garage thing where, it, you know, or... Um, uh, American Chopper, where it's like the TV show actually is a promotional tool for the business. When the TV show goes away, the business returns to its pre-TV show levels or dies. Yes, pretty much. So it'll be interesting to see if they uh, if they do that. But I, I think it's interesting that they've kind of kept the one bit of the business that was obviously making money versus its production costs. So, yeah, good luck to them. I think it won't be... Uh, won't be easy, but I think if they can pair it back and just focus on those two, they've got something viable there, which is good. Let's move on now, because we're not going to do our usual reviews. We're going to do what we've been watching over Christmas. And I think YouTube is going to be a fairly big chunk of this. However, before we start with that, what should we talk about that was on since our last episode? Well, there's a whole load of things. I think we recorded, what, beginning of December? We were going to try yep. and squeeze another show in, but didn't manage to didn't manage to get around to it because of being full of turkey and stuff. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the kind of grey area between Christmas and New Year where you've no idea what date or term, time or, you know, day it is. And all you know mm. is that there's some cheese in the fridge that stinks, but you can't find it. <laughs> And you don't know what to do with all the leftover turkey. Or maybe that's just me. Um, yeah, I, there's a bunch of stuff that, that came out. The Grand Tour Presents Carnage a Trois was out, I guess, towards the just before Christmas. And yep. is feels very much like a bunch of ideas that would have gone well in a later Top Gear series, um, much mm. like they did with... It's basically an extended gag on the Peugeot's chunk they did for Top Gear, where they talked about the history of Peugeot, where Peugeot were an incredibly successful manufacturer and very clever and very innovative, and they did a bunch of really great cars, you know, the the beloved 205 GTI, the, the 106 Rally, the 306 Rally, the 406 MI16. I yep. hope I'm saying that right. Sorry if I haven't, Darren. Darren. Um, <laughs> 
you know, they did a bunch of absolutely amazing cars and they won a ton of stuff at the rally and then it all kind of fell apart when they did like rubbish like the 208 and mm. and the 1007 and everyone just kind of went, Peugeots are really dull and crap and stopped buying them and the company kind of had a few problems there. And this whole episode is based around the fact that French do things differently when it comes to cars and there's a lot of mocking and sort of very slightly on the edge of meanness about the French, but then they bring it back by highlighting some of the best stuff that France has produced in terms of cars. It's a bit of a shame to say that almost all of it is in the quite significant past for France. (laughs) True. It reminds me a bit of the, you know, the Jaguar film they did for uh, Grand Tour. Yes. It's that thing where what they do, and I think they do it brilliantly, the th- particularly the three of them, and I think this is notable for having Richard Porter back as a script editor, maybe because it's like, who do we know that knows a lot about old French relics? Um, it They can do... They have the ability to make fun of something, but in an inclusive way. So you are in on the gag. And this was the thing about the Jag episode, was it was done with affection... It wasn't done necessarily with malice, but you were in on it. They were having a joke with you. And I think it had that real sort of sense of like, we're being silly. We're being absurd. We're talking about things in a, you know, it, it's all hyperbole and it's, and it's, it is yeah. all just very silly, but we know that it's, it's being silly and you know that we're being silly and there's stuff in there. So, you know, where they've, the, there's, there's stuff in there, like they, they do a, was it a review of a um, Renault Megane as though the French had done it? Um, and every time that they're eating, do you know what um, Autolan, or I'm going to pronounce this, pronounce all this wrong. Do you know what Autolan is? No. Did you see, or did you notice the bits where James May, every time they were eating, was sat with a cloth over his head? Yes. Did not understand that bit in the slightest. So there is a French delicacy where some small bird, possibly a small quail, something of that fa- that family, are essentially drowned in Armagnac. And you then eat this whole plump young bird, bones and all. But the only way that you can kind of eat it is by putting a cloth over your head to sort of hide you from God as you eat it. Um, it was proper, like, just the depth of it. Stuff like that. Like... Um, like that review that had instead of unfilmed uh, and uh, Monsieur Wilman, every time it's, they said had, they had man written everywhere, they changed it to Hom. So like down the side of one of the cars when they're doing the um, rally cross was uh, Roth Homs Racing, and it was just. <laughs> I tell you what, this, like this felt very much to me like it had been like stuff from the cutting room floor from mm. three series ago. They'd just gone. Well, we have to do something. Let's just do this. In that, you know, they brought Richard Porter back. They've got Abby back driving a rally car when they did that big race around um, mm. Lyddon Hill. Is it Lyddon Hill? Um, yes. Rally cross course. Either way, you know, it it didn't feel like all their other specials because they got more of the extended Grand Tour universe back. Um, mm. The reaction to this was kind of predictable from a bunch of people who were just like, I watched it and it was rubbish, waste of all my time, can't believe it, worst thing ever. And I have to admit, I had quite a, a good time watching it. It was it was exactly what I expected. 
I'm yep. never going to expect the kind of brilliance and stuff you haven't seen before that they did in the early to mid Top Gear run, because I I genuinely think that that kind of TV is not possible now. I I think we're all mm. too jaded and cynical. And we've seen a lot of it before, um, and they're getting on a bit and. You know, some stuff is is not possible anymore. But I did enjoy it, and mm. okay, I'm paying seventy something pounds a year for my Prime subscription, but I get other benefits for that. Like, <laughs> I can order, you know, new vitamin C tablets, and they'll arrive tomorrow with Prime, which worries me at how wasteful that is. But there you go. <laughs> I didn't pay for this, is what I'm getting at. It was free in my Amazon Prime thing on Friday the seventeenth of December. So. I was quite happy about that and I watched it and I had a few chuckles and that's that really. Uh, what well, other stuff did we watch? Well, before we move on, so one thing, and we should have a corner called Citation Needed where I read a thing and I've forgotten about it, where I read it. There may not be many more Grand Tour specials because, as we said before, the guys are all getting on. They're all either at, over or approaching 60 but one of the things that they said at the moment is it takes them six months to plan a foreign special. And at the moment, you cannot plan six months ahead to film a production that costs a lot of money. So I genuinely wonder if if foreign travel doesn't soon open up again in a reliable way, are we going to see them just go, we're not going to bother? Are they going to start doing more stuff like this? Are they going to start kind of leaning back towards the uh, like the old format? It's, like I say, this does kind of feel like a bit old to them. Or do we just get more Richard Hammond fixing classic cars and Jeremy Clarkson ploughing and tilling and all that sort of thing, and that's the end of it? So, Quite possibly. I think you're right. A... They've done an awful lot and they may feel like they don't want to do any more. Um, Age may be a thing. Other commitments to other programmes may be a thing. Mm. I guess we'll wait and see. Anytime they produce anything new, I tend to treat it as like a bonus now because, you know, we, we, we had three series of the Grand Tour plus a bunch of specials, a good 40 to 50 percent of those grand tour episodes were pretty good there were some that were yep. really good and similarly yep. with the specials i think they're probably at a 50 percent ish batting rate um mm. i don't really know how batting sports work sorry sports fans <laughs> um but you know they have many other things to do now and it may well be that these are the last kind of things we get from them there are loads of other places to get your automotive content like, like. Car Trek. <laughs> Seamless. Seamless. Seamless was, work. That sir. came to me as I was saying it. That was that was proper. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Car Trek Series 6 was on just before Christmas and was a good lot of fun doing something they hadn't really done. Another kind of road trippy thing with again reusing some of their own cars for some of the challenges, but by far and away the most fun bit was when they all had to buy four by fours and then take mm. them on a trail where it started snowing to a ridiculous degree. Um, and Genuinely scary. Some cars were not prepared for that in any way, and some cars were a bit more prepared for that. Um, but I, I, again, it 
it worked really well as a you know the three of them work well off of one another they they were i forget what the challenge was it was something like three car garage for 30 grand or 50 grand yeah. or something like that 30, um, grand, yeah. 30 grand three car garage and for once ed bolian didn't cheat and the other two did cheat blatantly <laughs> which kind of throws the whole concept you know it, it makes it seem a bit ridiculous if you can just um just cheat just cheat or, or small print your way out of it um Somehow when people who are not named Ed Bolian do it, it's less fun. (laughs) But I had a good time with it regardless, uh, and it did Mm. send me to the classifieds going, I quite fancy a Porsche Cayenne. There was one thing that frustrated me. I enjoyed it. I think we're already at a point now with those where you know what you're going to get. You know it's going to be good. Like you say, it's going to be sparking, it's going to be fun. One of the tasks that they had to do was a long-distance drive between somewhere and somewhere else. And Tyler had a Tesla Model S, which could do like 46 miles between charges or something like that. And he bottled it. He just went, oh, this is too difficult. I'll just stick it on a trailer and drive. And I think, actually, no, you've made your bed you lie in it. It's a tricky thing to do. You're going to suffer. You have to commit to the bit. And unfortunately, that means you need a more you need a bigger production. You need two crews to cover both things happening. They don't mm. have that. There comes a point, I think, where they're like, we have a limited window to shoot this in of mm. a week or so. We've got three guys with cameras and a drone operator and one car to, to film out of the back of. They don't have the resource that a Top Gear or a Grand Tour does to be able to handle when these things go wrong, to be able to go, okay, but we've already got the team covering what Tyler's doing and we can we can adjust on the fly. We've got loads of experience of this happening. I genuinely think that they have to prioritise getting all the footage that they need in the small amount of time they have. And so inevitably these cheats are going to happen. But I hear what you're saying. You do do kind of want to see him have to take the pain of it, even if it's only a short period of editing the, Mm. the, the thing that might have taken him 24 hours to get there. You do want to see him actually having to go through the pain because that's funny. Yes. That's the thing is, you know, and, and I'm not sure that they've quite realised that one of the things about Top Gear that that maybe people didn't realise is that when things go wrong, it's funnier. There's no point having, like as Clarkson once said, three reliable cars drive through <laughs> southern France without incident. <laughs> that's not funny. What is funny is cars where bits fall off, where things go wrong the moment you leave the motorway services. That- For the... Um- the Top Gear USA episode where they, they're driving on snow and the snow's melting. Yeah, basically, you know, when shit happens, it gets funny. And that's something I think they haven't quite grasped yet. And some of that, I think, is also to do with the kind of challenges they're set because they're sponsored by Auto Tempest, who mm. are a company that provide listings for selling and buying cars. And generally speaking... The, the budgets are high enough that you don't end up with crap, whereas mm. Top Gear very quickly realised that you give people less money than they actually want to buy a car, like 150 quid. Or, mm. you know, it, it, you need something that's going to reliably produ- provide you with material. And that's the one thing I would say that, that they are... They're not running out of ideas, but I think they run the risk of making things too easy by following the way they have now where someone uses a car out of their collection of cars or they 
kind of cheat their way around rules or they cheat their way around when breakdowns happen. If you watch, and I'm thinking Bugatti versus Plane, I'm thinking, was it the Ferrari 612 to a ski resort? Yes, Verbier. That is probably my favourite race. And because also it makes me want a 612 Scaglietti in the way that I want all (laughs) mid-2000s V12 GT cars. Exactly. Or um, the GTR across Japan. They, They actually plan it so it's going to be really, really close. And they film it. They basically film it through and all the pickup shots they then sort of do on the drive back to wherever they were going. But it has to be close because if it's not close, you know, you don't, you know, that feeling where, and I think was it, um, you know, you you pick any of those endings where they're like, where are they? Where are they? Are they here? Yeah, you can't fake that. I think it's Porter that says it in his book about the making of Top Gear where they did the first one, which was the Aston Martin DB9 to Monaco and Clarkson was there two hours before them and just got (laughs) hammered on on Rosé. And by the time they turned up, he's half in the bag to do his closing piece to camera. And they learned from that and then made it, you know, deliberately planned it to be closer. And there's that thing of, you know, there's... I think these shows. I think we're we're not being fair to Car Trek comparing them to to Top Gear. It's because they 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 give you that Top Gear challenges vibe really mm. really well, and they've done a fantastic job of achieving that on Definitely. far more limited resources. So I do feel it's a bit mean to compare them to to Top Gear, but it it does kind of highlight the kinds of things you have to do if you want to aim for that mm. kind of that kind of um, quality, there are certain things that Top Gear learned while they were shooting it that I think maybe these lessons are, are going to be shown in the next few car treks that come along. Mm. But we've talked about this for a long time. What else came out? Evo so, Car of the Year. Evo Car of the Year. Evo Brown Car of the Year. Sorry, I'm being really mean about things. No, 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 no. <laughs> we, we say these things, whether it's Car Trek, whether it's Evo, we say these things because we love this stuff primarily. We're not picking on the low guy here. It, you know, this is stuff I that have watched is good it. You we, have we my like. view. <laughs> I think Indeed. I may have watched it twice now. But yes, the you have my chunk of my YouTube Premium membership, which probably didn't go very far to each creator this month. No. Um, so I have I have issues with this, and I think it's telling. I can't remember which year it was, but there was one year when Sam Riley did an amazing. Ecotti video and it was glorious the content that they're they're putting out now doesn't have a video person's name on it and I have one big issue with this I have an editorial issue and I have a technical issue and it's the same issue that's appearing in the Evo Bedford car test lap record Steve Sutcliffe things as well which is Technically, the grade on them is really weird. So, like, the colorization, it's all... I think you said it's muddy brown and green. And a lot of it seems quite low contrast and muddy. And you've taken photos in Scotland. You know how fast the weather changes up there. And I have absolute sympathy with the idea of trying to shoot 12 cars over three or four days in every weather Scotland has to offer, inside the car, outside the car, you then import all of those clips into um, DaVinci or Final Cut or whatever it is, or Premiere, and you've then got to try and make them all look the same. And this is really struggling in that respect. There are shots that are 
underexposed, where the shadows have just crunched away to nothing. There are some that are spot on, and the cars look amazing. The grey throughout the whole thing is muddy and is just brown. And it's it's not like a... Is it Tony Scott or Ridley Scott where everything is like golden hour? That was Tony Scott's thing. Everything yeah. was golden hour. with and, and if it was in the 80s, it would have a, a big tobacco grad over the top of it, the kind of your classic Top Gun and then yeah. latterly Days of Thunder type look. I... We've talked about this with the previous year's Ecoti videos. I don't think the way that they present Ecoti is engaging. Ecoti works brilliantly on the page because you're put into the the mind of the testers. You're 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 taken on the journey alongside them and mm. you get their inner thoughts as they're trying to work out which car is best and what cars are good and what cars are bad and can jump about a bit and it can be a bit, idios- a bit idiosyncratic. Um, some of the more interesting ones have been the ones where there are slight flights of fancy where people are ordering potatoes covered in butter and and <laughs> there's lots of talk of, of the, the shit that gets talked over pints of beer while they're arguing about the ratings and so on. Mm. And honestly, I think that's what would make Ecoti videos brilliant and they're not like that. They're shot like car reviews. They're shot like 10 car reviews, one after the other, and then mm. there's a summary at the end. And there is always a talking head of why everyone loves Ecoti and why it's brilliant and so on and so on. Like if you're there, I'm sure it is. And yeah, I'm sure it's like brilliant. You're, <laughs> like they're trying to tell you about Ecoti, whereas I, I must admit, the, I don't know, maybe the people watching it are new to it but i would imagine most of the people watching it know what ecoti is anyway and there's a part of me that goes this would be so much better and i'm going to go back to top gear again because i'm a walking cliche (laughs) do you remember them on the isle of man reviewing the bmw m6 the aston martin v8 vantage and the porsche 997 carrera 2s in howling gale (laughs) but that was a a a group test effectively think of that as like Mm. a small ecoti but it cut to them arguing about it in the bar and it, then you go and do another challenge and then they'd be arguing at, about it on the side of the road. The problem with these videos is it's one person talking at a time to camera mm. or occasionally in voiceover. There's no feeling like you're there. This feels like it could have been shot on any number of grey, rainy October Saturday afternoons and then stitched together. What mm. it needs, for me at least, is to be filmed where you get you're a fly on the wall during this process that they're not aware of the camera in the same way piece to camera inside the car absolutely but outside the car i want to see the decision making process i want to be taken inside what it is like to be on an ecoti i could of course just ask my friend richard tipper who has been on one or two of these things (laughs) he never mentions it though so I, I also have a bit of an issue. I think you're absolutely right. I think some lead presenter, I think somebody... Because one of the things with the written one, which I think is what the video side of it needs, I'm trying to remember who wrote it now. It may have been Catchpole, but I'm sure they've all done it at some point, where somebody in the group gets told, right, you're the one writing this. And they have to gather everybody's feedback and opinions, but then they set the narrative. They actually give you that thread that goes all the way through rather than just tell us what you think. Tell, what have you just driven? Tell us what you think. 
do it a piece in, 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 into camera. Right, now in the edit, we'll try and find that narrative in the in in the piece. I know exactly why it's not done like this, because the time taken and the effort taken to do this does not provide the requisite reward for yep. that for that time and money and effort investment. Unfortunately, it's it's not worth it. That's why we don't get lots of video features on Evo's channel for better or for worse. And and I I love Evo magazine and and there's a whole bunch of people I know who are just like, nah, don't subscribe anymore. Nah, it's all boring. Uh, I don't care about it so much now. And I understand that, but I, I love it. And the people that, that make it love it too. And I will always be a subscriber for as long as there are <laughs> petrol powered cars between its pages, because I consider these people almost friends in some respects, because mm. I've read you know, read their work for so, so long and, and spoken to them at track days and so on. Um, but for for whatever reason, video has not been able to pay for itself as part no. of the Evo offering. And the same has to be said. It's going to be true for for Ecoti. I think Ecoti is done because they can get something out there and maybe doing it cheaply brings back just enough rewards that they break even. But I think when they've put the extra mile in, when they've got a samurai to do a gorgeous job, it hasn't brought in a, you know, a massive uptick in views that's ticked it over to like 2 million views or whatever and made that effort worthwhile in terms of revenue or in terms of ex- increased exposure. It's just not worth it. And so they don't do it. Mm. Anyway, we have talked a lot about on? this. Let's move on. <laughs> so those are the kind of the, 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 the key things that I watched that I knew were coming out around Christmas time. But there's a whole bunch of other things. I wrote down in the show notes the great F1 World Championship heist. I can't remember when the last race of the F1 season was now, but in terms of date. I, I, I don't think it, anybody's mentioned it since. Was it, was it after we recorded? It might well have been. There was, yes. a, there was a race. I was following along with all of those things, with kind of watching through my fingers as I, as I wondered whether or not it would be possible for a revitalised Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton to take the championship and it was possible right up until the point where it wasn't possible um (laughs) i enjoyed watching it up until the point where things all went sideways and then i'm pretty sure i just turned the tv off (laughs) i didn't even i haven't watched any of the punditry afterwards or anything like that i have read a bunch of the articles but um yes i watched some of the f1 i have gone back through the f1 tv archives after visiting the silverstone interactive museum this week and, and watched a bunch of silverstone races from the past which are quite enjoyable um I want to mention a couple of things, just as this kind of housekeeping almost. I watched the intro to a movie called Infinite, which is on Amazon Prime, which friend of the podcast Jack Wood told me about uh, while we were up in Scotland months ago now. He said, you should mm. watch this. Just watch the start because the rest of the movie is shite. But just watch <laughs> the intro because there's a great car chase in it. Um, and he's right. There is a great car chase at the start of this movie featuring an indestructible Ferrari Testarossa <laughs> being taken on a car chase through Mexico City where I'm not even sure if it's actually Mexico City, but there is a red Testarossa being driven in an exuberant manner. And unfortunately, <laughs> my disbelief was was unsuspended when they jump it over some bridge thing and it lands from about four feet and doesn't just smash into a thousand pieces, <laughs> but instead carries on on its way. You know why it's indestructible, don't you? Why is that? Because it's driving through somewhere hot and dry. If it was somewhere that had road salt, it wouldn't have made the end of the sequence. It would have dissolved into nothing. <laughs> but it's nice to see an old vintage Ferrari being used in a car chase. It's even got, it's at night, so the pop up headlamps are up, which makes it oh. like twice as cool as any other car chase. 
very um, very but cool. yes it's quite fun the, the i have there's some kind of storyline about people who can see the future or something i didn't really grasp that thing i was too busy looking at the cars <laughs> one of the other people um involved in that scene is driving an old aston v8 vantage um much like bond's one in in no time to die actually but uh, that ends up being blown up and so does the testarossa actually but the car chase at the start is is good fun for a car chase i may try and watch the rest of the movie now this has a look of a movie that is so bad it's good and funny um in terms of the premise of it all of the actors look dreadful and <laughs> and extremely wooden and unfunny but it's directed by anton Foucault, who's the guy that brought us training day amongst other things which uh. is an absolutely outstanding movie i think he may also have been responsible for the one of the two white house has been taken movies possibly the first one. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to get that out because I've been promising Jack I would review it on the pod. <laughs> I just kept forgetting. <laughs> so I did finally get around to watching the intro to that. And then when when the tester roster blew up, I turned it off. So I may go back because it looked like absolute schlocky rubbish. But sometimes that is all that you need. There's a bunch of other stuff here. I know you've got a whole load of stuff to go through. Yeah. Have you noticed? Well, let's start off because one thing that if you watch any amount of YouTube you will notice that a lot of YouTubers do things like the 12 Days of Christmas series and all this sort of thing. And I noticed Tavarish in particular, he was doing that awful Lamborghini Siesto Elemento thing that you mentioned. He did an awful lot of videos running up to Christmas, uh, which was unusual because he's kind of slowed down in his output because I think everything takes longer with the kind of projects he's taking on. But there were an Mm. awful lot of sort of here's the start of a series and you kind of get into it and then Christmas comes along and nothing happens because they rightly take some time off. But there was an awful lot of that going in in December. Hoovy was also very prolific in the run-up to December and you are now to tell us there is a reason for this, which I didn't know. So there's two things to bear in mind. Ed Bolian did a great video about YouTube sponsor deals and he talks about the sponsor spots that they run through uh, VinWiki. So what you get as a, for, as a sponsor for a month, they've released, although without the numbers, they've released a template for their sponsor deck, which is, I think is quite cool of them. One thing that they kind of touched on, but I've, I've learned about elsewhere, is AdSense revenue. So for those of you who don't know, those adverts that you see before a video, during a video, if you're not a YouTube Prime customer, those are inserted by Google and they are done like AdSense for Google search results. So they are done on an auction basis. So if you ever see these articles, and there was one recently in the BBC where somebody goes, um, this YouTuber earned somewhere between 200000 and a million dollars. The reason that nobody knows how much any YouTuber gets paid is because nobody really knows how what their ad revenues are. They don't know what their ad revenues are because all those ad spots are sold by auction. So if you are doing a YouTube channel on a subject which is uh, very advertiser-friendly, so maybe you're doing an investment channel, maybe you're doing luxury travel, you get more for those ad slots than somebody who's doing, I don't know... Um, I'm trying to think of something like gardening or weaving or something. I don't know. Now, not only do you get more for those advert slots, but you get more at different times of the year. 
So in the run-up to Christmas, ad revenues all go up. So they have this thing called uh, CPM, which is, uh, was it, um, is it clicks per thousand? Anyway, whatever it is. Literally, pick a YouTuber. They do not know month to month how much ad revenue they're getting. They know roughly, but until that check arrives, they don't know what their rate is. They can see it on a dashboard. Um, All the rates go up in the run-up to Christmas because all the advertising budgets go up. In January, all the ad revenue, all the ad rates all plummet because all the budgets have been spent and not a lot of people buy in January. So what you will see in so many areas of YouTube, not just car YouTube, loads of videos through Christmas take January off. And you see it over and over and over again. And this is why. And once you know that, you start to see people who are doing, um, they will either do it as a series or they will suddenly just start chucking out this content. And you're like, hang on, you're just doing this to get the videos out, aren't you? Because it's frankly quite obvious. Um, Go and watch Ed Bolin's video because it is very, very good. He's very honest about what they do, how they bring sponsor value outside of YouTube AdSense. Um, And yeah, it's really interesting to see how big channels actually make money beyond just ad revenue, you know, the sponsor deals and all the other stuff that goes on. Um, Moving on from that, did you see... Actually, just going back to one thing, things you said earlier, have we had a particularly good year for F1 team and... I was going to say FOM, not FOM, but like series coverage. It feels like people are up in their YouTube game this year. I think we have. I've noticed... I mean, part of it is just, you know, the the incredible attention that the sport's had for having a close championship battle between two rivals from different teams, both mm. of whom are at the top of their game, both of whom are considered to be the best drivers on the grid by a country mile, and both of whom have got a bit argy-bargy with one another. It's got a bit acrimonious. There is so much mileage in doing videos about that. And, yeah, everyone's pulled it probably taken it to extremes, which is why I've kind of switched off a bit from that. But Mm. I think it's been, I think a lot of the teams are getting better. Although that said, I only follow a few F1 teams on, on on YouTube, but um, I've always said, I enjoyed the, the Mercedes uh, debrief videos that they release because they're always very honest about that. I will admit if there is one out there for Abu Dhabi, I haven't watched it. Whoever filmed that, if they did do one, then my goodness, you earned your paycheck that day because that must be incredibly <laughs> painful to talk about. You know, I spotted um, you know Driver Sixty One, who we featured on the channel, yes, uh, doing a a very good look at whether or not things happened correctly in Abu Dhabi. I, you know, and any of those videos for channels will do gangbusters in terms of of viewer numbers because it's of the moment and it was a controversial finish to a season. I don't know if I've seen anything that's actually bowled me over for something new, but I'm going to bring it back to the the thing in the notes. (laughs) Was it Mercedes who posted Anthony Davidson's lap of lights lap? It was. Around Silverstone. So every, starting last year, I think, 2020, Mm. Silverstone clearly went, well, everyone else is doing these these Christmas lights things. All of the stately homes do them now. Some of them good, mm. some of them bad. Lots of vintage steam railways do them now. Also, some of them good, some of them Ooh. bad. So 
what they do is when they there's no racing going on during winter, they just get like a bunch of moving headlights and lasers, line the track with them, and you can pay 25 quid to come and drive a lap around Silverstone with lots and lots of shiny, flashy lights. So Anthony Davidson goes, can I borrow one of those Mercedes W05s, please? <laughs> uh, pays his 25 quid and then goes around Silverstone at a frankly terrifying speed in the pitch dark with no headlamps. I watched this and you know what I thought? I thought F1 has missed a trick here because if we learned anything from hyperdrive, it's that cars driving through lights in the dark looks awesome. So, yeah, there's no trackside camera. It's all on board. What they really needed was trackside cams to make oh, it, to, yes. to really sell this. But can you imagine? Forget like Singapore or Bahrain where they line the track with 5000, you know, megawatt lanterns. What they should do is just line the track with like illuminated Santa Clauses and lasers, line up 20 cars on the grid and say, go. You know, the race take, like starts at 10 p.m., runs till midnight, pitch black, you know, somebody gets a laser in their eye and they miss their breaking point or something. It would be fantastic. <laughs> Only if we can have those drift challenges where they have to hit bins that have little lights on them or whatever it is, or they have a bit where, yes. where they have to skate their car down two, two rails or... Or the, um, the what was the, uh, the teeter-totter yes. uh, seesaw thing Let's called? Let's test their clutch control. <laughs> Forward, forward, no, back away, back away, back away, forward. Oh, God, you imagine Christian Horner doing that on the radio. Hi, oh. it's DJ Horner here. <laughs> Let's rock. Ah, <laughs> oh, there is a gentleman that I do not wish to hear coming back. Speaking of which, the drive to survive is going to be unwatchable for, for season four. I'm going to get so cross because it's just going to be wall-to-wall <laughs> Christian Horner peddling lies and, 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 and hype and propaganda and and I guarantee you, Drive to Fives, Drive to Survive season five will have absolutely no Mercedes or Lewis Hamilton involvement. I I, I would be willing to put a crisp five pound note on the fact that they will tell Netflix to get fucked. <laughs> Speaking of F one production, I saw a great video, which not from a channel that I follow, not from anybody that I've ever seen before, but it really caught me by surprise because it was a video by Tommy DeWitt, who did a video all about how F1 is filmed and the cameras that he used and the helicopters and the, the spec of the onboard cameras, all this sort of stuff, all very interesting. However, one thing that I learned is how they actually manage the, on, uh, the live broadcast. So in the TV gallery, they have one team that follows the on-track action the whole time. That's all they do, whole race, no matter what. They're just cutting from camera to camera, following cameras around the track. There's another team who just do replays. So they find stuff that's happened that wasn't shown. They line up clips for things that were shown. And then you've got a team that have the race feed. They have the replays. They have the uh, pit cameras. They have the helicopters, all of this stuff. And they are the ones who kind of bring these three streams together and there's a brilliant video that was partly used in in uh, in this one by uh, by Tommy. It's an official F1 video, and it is capturing the moment at Hockenheim when Vettel went off in the Ferrari. Is that in the wet Germany 2018? 
Yes. And it's an open mic in the gallery. Yeah, yes. This reminds me, I this everything old is new again. Jake <laughs> Humphrey, when he was presenting oh, F1 back in the day, 2010, yes. 2011, even 20, 2009, I think even, that was when the BBC got the rights back from ITV and happened to coincide with that Braun year. But he, having come through the BBC system, having worked on somewhere like Blue Peter, I think, was where he cut his teeth. He was used to having a director in one ear talking him and you're giving him cues and and so on while he's talking to camera which sounds like (laughs) the most absurd thing very very difficult but he years and years and years ago actually put up a video i think on maybe on the bbc's channel which gave an example of not only what he was saying but also the feed to his in-ear monitors so that you got a, a sense of how he's responding to what the director is telling him in his ears and it blew my mind because i play drums and other musical instruments <laughs> i can make i can sing and move four limbs in relative time and so on <laughs> but i could not work out how to split my attention between what was coming in the ear there and saying something without appearing like you slowing down to just listen to what the man is saying that was astonishing this felt like that cubed this is i i don't know how many people it was it sounded like probably I would guess nine men, all in the production gallery, all trying to tell each other what they've got lined up, what's going on, what we're going to follow, what's happened that we haven't seen, what's happening that we're not seeing, what's about to happen, all at the same time, all talking over each other, all working together. And it is... It's astonishing. It, uh, it is absolutely astonishing to hear what goes into the pictures that you see because we have it astonishingly good now with the TV coverage oh we have, especially if you go and watch something like IndyCar, which is competent but nowhere near the comprehensive coverage we get with F1, which might be you know one of the most comprehensively covered sports in the world in, in terms of the quality and the number of cameras and the, the, the tools that we have to present a race to, to people. Watch, watch a, an F1 race, a classic F1 race from like 20 years ago, which... You know, you think, oh, early 2000s, how different was that? They don't have anywhere near the amount of graphics, of onboard cameras, of anything. The ability to pick up a replay, the ability for them to send it to a commercial right at the point where Michael Schumacher is going to overtake <laughs> Fernando Alonso. <laughs> you know, still that, salty. That's, still salty. Um, yeah, this is an amazing video. And this is, what, four years old now? Yep. We're in 2022. That's, and, you know, the coverage is, by and large, getting better year on year. And and so it's, it blows my mind. Plus, again, I'm going to shill for F1 TV. They're not paying me. I just think it's brilliant. <laughs> um, go back and watch Germany 2018 because it's an amazing race. Oh, yes. It is an amazing race. And, and it's another one of those ones for all the haters that are like, Lewis Hamilton's only got these titles because he's the best car, blah, 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 blah. And he starts at the front all the time. Go and see what he did there compared to everybody else. It's, it's astonishing. Anyway, let's move on. Um, you've got something about DeLoreans again, haven't you? Well, before we get to that, Let's go from one of the, the loudest, shoutiest videos to one of the most quiet, because I watched this over Christmas and it made me laugh. Jimmy Broadbent, who does all sorts of uh, sim racing and driving stuff, and, and fair play to the guy. If you ever look at his channel, 
it's not just, here's me racing, here's me racing again, here's me racing again, here's me racing again. He will go and seek out these weird little things. And he was driving the, Nord- the Nürburgring Nordschleife in a Seto Corsa in, and I'm going to get the name of it wrong now, but the, you know the first like Daimler-Benz production car that had, it was like a, a, a bench mounted over three wheels with like a rotary engine. I know the one. I've, on the, I've on the seen chassis. it at the Bewley Motor Museum. Yes. It's, so the, the, somebody's created this mod for Assetto Corsa with this car with three quarters of horsepower and a man sat atop it in a uh, top hat and a waistcoat um, with an amazing moustache. And the car can do 14 miles, uh, 14 kilometres an hour. That's flat out. So what you kind of, so what he basically does is he'll get up to 14 kilometres an hour. And if he's going downhill, you knock it into neutral and this thing will just pick up speed. So from like um, Sabine Schmidt corner, all the way down to like before Flugplatz, you're just picking up speed all the way through Hats and Back. And then you get to an incline and it's got three quarters of horsepower. And <laughs> it's not even one. <laughs> no. And what's brilliant is that, spoiler alert, it can't get up some of these hills. Uh, it can't just go straight up. So it's worth watching. One, because like in your head, you're sort of thinking ahead. Two, Jimmy is basically going insane. And when he gets bored, like going up Kesselshin for like 10 minutes, <laughs> and he's just like, he's chatting to the marshals as he drives past. He's realising what bits of track are coming up. And it's it's just, it's oddly fun just to watch somebody just torture themselves <laughs> over a whole lap of just weird choice. It's 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 silly and it's fun. And if you get it, it will just, um, it will tickle you. And it tickled me. And I think, God bless him for doing that. And I think he says at one point, it's like, oh God, if this hasn't recorded, I'm not doing it again. DeLoreans. <sighs> so don't worry. The Haggerty Foundation, which is not a name that I'd come across before, has this repository of documentaries that they seem to be making. Incredibly high quality documentaries. They've just done one for the Countach. Uh, for, uh, no, it was specifically about the Countach that was in Cannonball Run. The the black oh, one. I've seen that come up on... I think YouTube's tried to suggest me watching that a yes. few times. And I've kind of gone, I will, but not now. <laughs> so I've, I've watched that. I've watched the, the, uh, the DeLorean one. Both of them, really high quality. Both of them are really interesting expensively made films um and what both of them do and i'll 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 discuss the back to the future one the kuntash one kind of hits a lot of the same notes and is as thorough so the delorean one if you only watch one thing about delorean time machines Watch this video. No, it's basically... no, no. <laughs> if you only watch one thing about DeLorean time machines, make that thing back to the fucking future. If you watch four things about DeLorean time machines, so this, so rather than just saying, you know, this is why this is why it was a DeLorean, this is why it wasn't a fridge, this is why they didn't drive into a nuclear test at the end of it. This basically goes, 
this is who John DeLorean was. This is how his career went. This is how he started a motor company. This is what happened to the motor company. This was the FBI sting. Then you get back to the future and it's like, this is why they chose the DeLorean. This is why they didn't take a Mustang. This is how they made it. This was then what happened to the cars. Then we've got the fan cars. Then we've got the restoration of the hero car. And you've got, in an hour, you've got everything from John DeLorean at Chrysler, I think he was, through to now. One thing I will shout out as well. Bob Gale said, in this, they like people who make replica cars. If people want to carry on the legacy, we will support you. We're not going to sue anybody. We're not going to go after everybody. We want more people to build DeLoreans. Which is in stark contrast to the lady who's like, no, you can't build an old Mustang because they're all mine. All exactly. mine. Exactly. And the Kutash one is, is a brilliantly similar film in as much as it starts off with, you know, here's where the Kutash came from. Italy. The Cannonball Run. In, but, you know, it, like... Um, Sorry. A thingy Lamborghini, you know, this was the, the the predecessor. This is when it was launched. And then you've got Cannibal Run and you've got the movie and you've got the Hawaiian Tropic guy who owned it, who like actually where he came from as well. So it, they are really comprehensively, really well made, expensively made documentaries. I quite like the sound of that DeLorean one. I must admit the Intercooler podcast episode on John DeLorean was interesting and, you know, gave me some facts I didn't know. And so this sounds like a visual version of that. Uh, which I could mm. be on board with, to be honest. But yes, if you if you watch one thing about DeLoreans, make it Back to the Future. <laughs> Not a documentary about Back to the Future, just watch the movie because it's still brilliant. Anyway, that's enough about DeLoreans. We, we must not talk about DeLoreans or Fast and the Furious for like the next five podcasts. Maybe. <laughs> should we talk about what... Um, should we go back onto our usual format as much as we have one this week? That's true. We've, we've kind of taken a long time, as we, as we tend to do these days. Um, what's Henry Catchpole been doing since we last podded? He drove the BMW M5CS. He also did a lot of content in the road to Christmas. But I really enjoyed this look at the BMW M5, which is a car that surprised me in how it's been received. Well, yes, it's a 150 grand BMW M5 that has done quite well reviews-wise. Do I want one? No. But the thing about M5s is I never want the current one. I always want the the one that is one or two generations back from the current one. <laughs> Partly because, you know, you look, say, 150 grand. If I'm buying a car for 150 grand, it's not going to be a fucking four-door saloon. It's, you know, it's going to be a mid-engine rocket ship. Come on. Or it's, it's going to be a 60 grand. Or it's going to be a bunch of cars. In a year's yeah, exactly. time. <laughs> you know, it's, it, that's the thing. I, I find it hard to get excited about brand new M5s and the Elk because brand new, they are at premium prices. But this one does seem to have done rather well. And Henry's piece on it is really, really good. It's a it's a great look at why this has been reviewed so well, why it's such a good car. and All road-based as well. It's not just a track smoke fest. Yes, well, and that, that helps because, realistically speaking, there are very few people who take their M5s on the track. By and large, they are road cars for travelling between point A and point B in, in fast, quiet comfort. That's always been the appeal of the M5. It's the, the walk softly and carry a big stick car. But yes, it's a good video. You should check it out if you haven't seen it already. Um, I think it might be the best of the M5 CS reviews. Uh, let's do YouTube Pick of the Week show and a channel. We better whiz through these because we're, we're, we're running out of time. My pick 
is one that was highlighted um, somewhere. Where, where I don't know, can't remember where I saw it highlighted. Tangent Vector, JF Mutual's video company, did a piece about Joseph Newgarden at the Nashville Music City Grand Prix IndyCar thingy. And he is a um, local resident. He's like the local hero. And they followed him through the weekend. And all the things that he does on the track and off the track. Spoiler alert, it does not go well towards the end. Well, no. I, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really, really good piece of documentary filmmaking. I thought that they focus on the person. Somebody compared it to Drive to Survive. and I think it's better than Drive to Survive because it feels like a proper fly on the wall. It feels like that proper sense of people just doing their thing and having chats and all of this nice stuff. And it's all just, it's all just a bit nice. I haven't seen this. I do. It's kind of on my, I think it's on my YouTube watch list of things I need to get to. Um, I, yeah. I didn't watch all the IndyCar races last year, but I did watch all of this Music City Grand Prix because it was one of the most hyped events. And I did enjoy most of it, although I thought the circuit had had its issues. Um, oh, God, yes. It was a good event for IndyCar. So this is definitely going to be worth a watch. What's your channel? So my channel is the slightly awkwardly named Bilk. Or <laughs> because I love cars. Oh, um, okay. I thought you were going to go down something like MILF then for a minute. <laughs> I went on the internet this week and I found this. Thanks to the algorithm. This is entirely an algorithm find. This is not something that I found independently. Ginetta are having a bit of a push at the moment. So the Ginetta GT Academy car that we talked about in the last episode on Carfection, it turned up on Drive Tribe. It's turned up on Jalopnik's channel, and there is a, a a guy called Ed Akers who is racing one this year, and he has a YouTube channel, fairly new YouTube channel called Bilk because I love cars, and it goes through what it takes to basically, um, you know, start racing, choose the car, see the factory. He's got some projects that he's working on. He's done videos going round the, um, was it the supercar driver secret meet at Donington that um, Phil Morrison and other people went to? And he is sharing his passion. He's got a, a production company involved with it who are doing the filming, so it's not like, you know, arm's length handheld vlogging. Um, he's, I think the channel's been going for about six months and he's currently on 395 subscribers, which... We should be able to get him up to 396. Come on, listener. <laughs> it's nice, actually, to see somebody quite so early in their YouTube career that is doing a lot of things right. I think there's still scope for improvement. Um, but, you know, we're now, what, nearly 50 episodes into this podcast and there might still be room for improvement. Um I don't uh, yeah, know I, what you're saying. This is <laughs> frankly perfect. A, a tight 45 every time. Um, <laughs> You've never got anywhere near a 45-minute podcast. <laughs> this one's um, going to be more than double, I suspect. Probably. But yeah, it, this is proper good enthusiast car content. Um, when he recaps his races, I think some of his onboard footage and voiceover is really good. He is engaging to watch. I think he's going to be one to watch for the future. I think he has a, a future doing this if he wants to to carry on. So yeah, Bilk, hashtag B-I-L-C, 
bit of a mouthful worth a watch. Marty, what are your picks and channels? So, as we've talked about, we watched an awful lot of stuff over Christmas, uh, and I found myself, I can't remember how, but landing on a best motoring race again. Now, it wasn't even on the best motoring channel. I found this on some other guy's channel. I'm going to have to go and look up who the the guy's, uh, what the channel name is. Um, But it's a guy called Jack Kello who seems to have a lot of these best motoring like compilations or maybe they were on VHSs and he's he's copied them or something but either way I found myself watching a race between get this a Ferrari 50 a Ferrari okay. 40 a right. Lamborghini Diablo okay. a 996 GT3 a okay. R34 GTR a right. 993 GT2 right. and a Ferrari F355 around Suzuka how many times do you see those cars being brought in one place, let alone being absolutely rinsed around one of the greatest <laughs> racing circuits on the planet? And when By I say Japanese that, maniacs. Absolutely wrung out. One of my favourite things about the best motoring videos, particularly the older ones, is the people they bring in to drive are not afraid of giving it all of the beans. They really <laughs> push these cars in a way that you just never see now. I mean, partly because they're worth a lot more uh, and partly because I don't think the owners of the cars are comfortable allowing drivers to do that to them. Whereas, you know, there's, this has an F50, which is being absolutely thrashed, really lent on in the corners, absolutely mashing the throttle the moment they can get, you know, all the grip to the rear wheels. It's Amazing to see these cars driven this hard and raced this hard because they are racing. Um, I don't know how standard all of the cars are, particularly the two Ferraris, the F40 and the F50. The F50 seems astonishingly quick. Um, really, really quick. I, there is a car that is so criminally, und- was at least so criminally underrated mm. compared to the F40. I would have the F50 every day of the week and twice on Sundays compared to the F40. Uh, of all that kind of mid-90s Ferrari Exotica, it was always the the F50 for me. So this was kind of probably the reason why I ended up watching this video. But it's also fun to see how long a 993 GT2 can hold off an F50 by sheer dint <laughs> of boost and, uh, you know, rear engine traction. And very, very talented people yeah, at the wheel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's the same names crop up again and again. So I'm going to put a link, there'll be a link in the show notes to this video, it's absolutely worth watching. It's like 19 minutes long. You may not want to watch the very start bit, but the race is worth watching all of the six laps around Suzuka because you're never going to see these cars driven this hard ever. Uh, and my channel is the aforementioned Supercar Driver, which I was, I missed it completely. I was tipped off by a um, friend of the show, Chris Frew, who sent me a link to their recent piece featuring the um, E46 M3 CSL, the 996 GT3 RS, and the other car. <laughs> I've forgotten the damn... What's it's Challenge Stradale? Yes, that's it. The Ferrari um, 360 Challenge Stradale all in North Wales on what is now known as the Evo Triangle, um, all recorded with very good microphone sources so that you get all (laughs) the the differing but equally delicious exhaust notes of all of them. An interesting review. I'm not quite sure who Supercar Driver are as a channel. They're on like 180,000 subscribers, so they're not small, but their videos aren't doing like 180,000 views per video, I don't think. 
they are so they are as far as i can tell essentially a club for people that own supercars and they put on events and driving tours and all that sort of good stuff so you can go and do supercar-y things with other right, supercar-y okay. drivers i mean there's some good stuff on here that's got some decent mm, um, well made it's very well made and it's it's engagingly presented the cars are all incredibly well chosen and they seem to find the only times to film on the Evo Triangle where the police are not staking the place out. <laughs> the last few times I've been there, it's been very disappointingly covered in the Rosas. But I, I I enjoyed this this clip, particularly the because it's three cars that are kind of from that generation of sports cars where there really was no compromise and there was not necessarily a marketing agenda as much as there was a racing agenda. And, yes. And so there's something purer about these three cars than there is anything else. And the whole channel is full of a lot of those kind of similarly curated choices. So there's just, you know, a Ferrari 355 GTS. The one that landed just today, the boring estate with a 6.2 litre V8 is the Mercedes-Benz C63 AMG. (laughs) The W204 with the M156 engine that Jack used to rumble around in making filthy downshift noises. Love those cars. So, you know, it's it's absolutely in my wheelhouse for a bunch of these things. So I think there's there's a lot to love about the channel. You could go onto their page and find three or four things you'd want to watch straight away. It's really it's it's really high quality stuff actually. So oh, yeah. if you haven't seen that video and that, that particular one, the class of two thousand three mega test has done the rounds, I think, on socials and so on. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, go and watch it because the sound alone is amazing. And and it'll make you, you know, wish for the time when these things weren't quite as astronomically expensive as they are now. Uh, seventy grand nine nine six GT threes and challenge Stradales. Yeah, CSLs that were 40 grand and not 80. Ugh. Even less in some respects. But anyway, you know, it's you can kind of live vicariously through the video. So definitely <laughs> worth 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 a subscribe, I'd say, there. And yep. that brings us to the end of this mammoth bumper catch-up show of the Automobile Podcast. If you have enjoyed listening to the last 48 episodes of this here podcast, or even this just one, uh, please do tell your friends, um, subscribe to it on your podcast repository of choice and if you feel so inclined do leave a hugely positive review please <laughs> no insulting and- one star reviews here um, <laughs> because it does help to to reach more than one listener um, and we do thank you dear listener and if you do have any films that we haven't covered let us know because we love to find stuff whether it's good whether it's super fast we enjoy finding all this stuff out there because there's so much that doesn't appear on all those lists you get in all those articles on all those websites and that's what we're here for yes so with that we are going to let lapped cars pass and then we're going to finish (laughs) under the safety car no wait we're not we're going green flag racing now (laughs) Sorry, I'm choking on my art bag. (laughs) See you next week.